good morning. morning. Or afternoon or evening, wherever you happen to be, let me welcome the campuses. Uh, We're glad that you guys are along, or maybe you're in the warehouse or the chapel, or uh, on the internet campus, or somewhere in the world. We're glad that you have chosen this morning to to, uh, uh, study with us. Now, here in the low country, it is a brisk, chilly, cold, ah, it's not cold, but you know, we... This is as close as it comes to snow, okay? So, so we're watching the weather report last night, and there's like this little sliver of a chance that we might get a skiff, so we all get our snow shovels ready, right? <laughs> you don't know what a snow shovel is? No, we don't have them. In fact, why do I live here? People ask me, why did you move here from northern Illinois? And uh, what we did is we strapped the snow shovel onto the top of our car, and we drove south until they didn't know what it was. And we said, this is... This is kind of where we need to be. Let me ask you a question. You ever ask yourself why you choose to spend $4 on a cup of one of these when you could have coffee for a whole lot less? Anybody ever ask yourself that question? Why do you do that? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you do not have this addiction. Okay, I do. Um, so, So my wife and I asked that. A couple of years ago, I so said we're spending you know X amount of dollars on, on the coffee house, and uh, our our particular vice is Starbucks because it's right around the corner from my house. And uh, why, why are we doing this? Let's let's buy one of these coffee machines. And so we bought, uh, I think it's called a Keurig, and um, it's one of these deals that you put water in, and anytime theoretically you can walk in there, put this little cup. It's real simple. And you can have fresh coffee. And so we said, we're going to do that. And we did that for about a week. (laughs) And then I said, it's just not the same. And it's not. It's not the taste. I don't even like coffee, okay? I I don't. Um, In fact, when I'll go to Starbucks, every once in a while, one of the baristas will say, hey, you want us to sneak you an extra shot or two? And it's like, no, 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 take the shot that I get out. You know, I have this kind of foo-foo deal. No, it's not even the coffee, it's, it's being there. I mean, I like it. I, I like standing in line. That's about the only place that I do. I don't mind unless I'm in a huge area. I'd, you know, get to talk to people. I mean, I met a couple that are in this service somewhere this morning, and it was wonderful just to kind of get acquainted a little bit. I, I love when the barista says, Greg, she knows my name, Greg, or he does. Is it the the usual? That's a little embarrassing because I've never ordered anything else. I did one time and nearly uh, nearly had a medical failure with one of the people helping me. And then they'll say, is Miss Debbie getting something today? No, she doesn't even come in with me. But they know what she gets. I like being there. What is it about Starbucks or another coffee house that makes me pay $4 and not feel bad about it. It's because they are commercializing a rapidly um, kind of disappearing value in America of hospitality. Now, I remember uh, when I was a kid, I used to go to Grandma's house, and then I lived with my grandpa and grandma in um, Los Angeles, Santa Monica, California, uh, for uh, a few months. And Grandma... Uh, always had a coffee, uh, pot of coffee on. I mean, it's the first thing they'd do when they get up, either grandpa or grandma would get up and they'd put on the, the pot and you'd smell it, you know, through the whole house and it was always there. And then things would happen that don't happen so much anymore. People would just drop 
buy. Are you familiar with that concept? I mean, no purpose. They didn't need to borrow anything. They didn't have any news. They just dropped by. And it was great. It was not a problem. We'd stop whatever we were doing. We'd sit down. And if it happened to be around a mealtime, Grandma would say, hey, let me put an extra plate at the table. I've got plenty. Why don't you have dinner with us? Well, see, that's kind of foreign. It doesn't happen so much anymore. In fact, coffee house kind of replaces the need for a random and instant community. In his book, uh, Bowling Alone, Robert Putman says this. He says, there's, there's been a 33% decrease in families eating together over the last three decades. 33%, one-third decrease over the last three decades of families eating together. And he said, those that do eat together, over 50% of them are watching TV while they're eating, okay? Does that sound like anybody you know here? In the same period, he says, there's been a 45% decline in entertaining friends, now, when I was growing up in my home, on Sundays, a common question was, hey, mom, hey, dad, who's coming over for lunch today? It wasn't whether somebody was coming over, it was who's coming over for lunch. Not so much anymore. Big decline in that. Typical American household has three dinners eaten together per week. Uh, many homes no longer even have a dining room. I was I was looking at a, at a set of plans with one of my kids the other day. I said, where's the dining room? Well, we don't need one. We, we don't have a dining room. Uh, that's interesting in that one of their favorite shows is, is, is on the Food Channel. And we have made celebrities of chefs on the Food Channel. And cookbooks are often bestsellers, and yet we don't cook. But we do have security systems, and our security systems and gated communities protect us from outsiders. But they also cut us off from forms of community, and they become our prisons. But we get our community vicariously from watching, uh, you know, uh, 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 reality TV or uh, Downton Abbey or Modern Family. You know, and also in checking out Facebook. And friends these days are defined as more an accumulation of numbers on a blue and white website rather than people that we actually eat together and laugh together and cry together with. Now, as I was thinking about that, I thought about Jesus because meals and food were very, very important to Jesus. If you read his story in the New Testament, you can't read it without reading about a meal. In fact, uh, let me give you a statement, see if you can fill in the blank. If I was to say to you today, the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, came blank. Okay, the Son of Man came blank. There's actually three scriptures in the Bible that says that. Do you know what he came to do? Do you know what it says that he came to do? Well, the, the first one is found in um, Mark 10, 45. If you've got an outline sheet, uh, take a look at that. If not, maybe you have a Bible, or it'll be on the screen. Let's read it together. Let's read it together. See what Jesus came to do. The Son of Man, I'll tell you what, we're going to do it again because they weren't reading in Irmo, okay? You guys in Irmo, let's read. I have 
scary gifts this way, okay? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what did the, the Son of Man came to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, okay? Second one, Luke 19.10, let's read this one. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. So if you're going to fill in the blank on that one, what did the Son of Man come to do? Seek and to save. He came to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And then the third one is this. Let's read it out loud. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I like that one. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. <clears throat> and in his book, um, A Meal with Jesus, Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around a Table, Tim Chester says this. He says, the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came, his purpose, statement of purpose was, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and he came to seek and to save the lost. That was his purpose. That's why he came. The third one was his how. how he came to do this. How was he going to do that? He came eating and drinking. And apparently in Luke, when it gives this scripture, it wasn't just eating and drinking enough to get by. In fact, let's go, let's read the whole scripture because it's actually a quote from Jesus. And he's talking about what his enemies say about him. And he said, the son of man came eating and drinking. That's what he says about himself. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, apparently, Jesus is so seriously into eating and drinking that his enemies accused him of do it, doing it in excess. You eat so much, you're a glutton. You drink so much, you're a drunkard. Was Jesus a glutton and a drunkard? I don't think so. How many of you know your enemies exaggerate? Okay. But there was something to it. Apparently, he ate and he drank enough in enough situations that people said, in fact, they, they, in another place, I didn't even put it on your outline sheet, they came and they said, you know, John's disciples, they fasted a lot. Your disciples are always eating and drinking. What's up with that? Um, it was a significant part of his strategy. It's what he did. It, it's, it's, how he, it's, it, it's how he fulfilled what he was. His mission and strategy was a long meal, sometimes stretching out into the into the evening. He did discipleship. He did evangelism around a table. How he did it. Now, in his book, uh, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, Robert Karras says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> you just think about that. Read the Gospel in light of that. And so meals for Jesus were about friendship. They were about acceptance. It says that he ate with sinners and he ate with tax collectors, people that other people didn't accept. It was about community. Well, if that was a part of his strategy, then it ought to be a part of ours too. He modeled for us what it means to live the life of the kingdom. So, so how does that impact you and I? Well, we're in a series uh, right now called Make Room. Do you guys have your first make room small group? Isn't it great? 
have a good time. And, and you, listen, you're just tasting the very beginning of it. Uh, Seacoast wide, there's over 11,000 people, or 11,000, uh, 1,100. There are over 11,000 people attending this weekend, but there was a, over 1,100 people who stepped up and said, I'm going to get two or three friends or 10 friends or whatever, and we're going to meet together and we're going to... Uh, do a community experiment. We're going to experiment in community over the next six weeks. And if you didn't do that already, it's not too late. You can start this week. No problem. There's um, uh, things in, in the lobbies or breezeways or whatever. There's, there's displays where they'll help you to somehow get connected. Maybe connect to a group or show you how you can gather two or three friends. And we'll give you the information to do that. But we started it. And what we did is, um, is uh, we, on the weekend... We're studying a um, kind of a central story, the, the study of the relationship between the man of God, Elisha, and this wealthy uh, widow, or not widow, this wealthy woman and her husband, Elisha and this couple. And we're, we're all six weeks, we're going to study various aspects of it. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about a miracle that took place in their home and how we can apply that to our lives a little bit. But last week, we left her and her husband building a room for the man of God. If you were here, you remember that. They built uh, a furnished room over the garage, the first frog that was ever recorded in, in the uh, Bible. And they invited the man of God to come and to actually live with them. Now, here's my deal. How do you go from being a stranger to saying, hey, honey, let's build a room onto our house, and let's bring this guy in so he can live with us. I mean, that just doesn't happen like this. How does it happen? They developed a relationship. They got to know this guy. He got to know them. They probably talked some things through, and then it seemed like this is the right thing to do. Let's expand. Let's make room. And if we make room, God will fill it. The whole premise of the series is you can't make God move, but you can make room for God to move. And this week we're going to talk about that in relationship. And so, and so how did they do it? Well, in verse 8, which is the only verse we're going to study this week, we kind of just glossed over that verse last week. We kind of just hit it and didn't say anything about it. This week I want to study it. We're going to study one verse. Here's how the relationship developed. It says, one day Elisha went to Shunem. Remember, that's where they lived. And a well-to-do woman was there and she, who urged him to stay for a meal. For a meal. She urged him. First, first step in the relationship was let's eat together. And then it goes on, and it says, So whenever he came by, he stopped there to do what? Eat. To eat. And so before they built a room on, before they made room, they developed a relationship around a table eating a meal, that first meal led to another meal and to another meal until finally it was so habitual that every time he came through, they ate together. So I want to talk to you about making room for relationship in your life, and more specifically, how can we eat our way into better relationships? How many of you think that sounds like a good sermon, okay? <laughs> that's where we're going. I want to talk to you about it. Guess how many parts it has? Three, that's right, because God always speaks in threes, right? At least at Seacoast, he does. All right. It's the Trinity. It's the whole thing happening. So how do we eat our way into a better relationship? We need to understand some things about meals. First of all, meals force us to slow down. A meal forces us to slow down. 
So let me tell you about a meal I had. Um, a few years ago, I made a commitment uh, to go to India at first twice a year, um, and, and then uh, over time it was once a year, and it was to train leaders uh, in India. And so that was kind of my personal mission. Now, at that point, uh, you could not go from directly from any big city in America to Chennai, uh, India, where I was going. So you had to stop in Europe. And after a few stops in Europe, I thought, you know what, let's get creative with this. I want to go, since I got to go there anyway, I'm going to go to a town I haven't been to. I'm going to go to Paris, spend the night in Paris, uh, go to the Eiffel Tower and catch a pl flight out the, the next night since I've never been there before. And so a friend of mine, Ray, went with me. And uh, we found this little hotel in Paris, which is a whole other story. No air conditioning. It was hot. It was just miserable. So we walked to the Eiffel Tower. And it was late afternoon. By the time we were done, we were thirsty. We were hungry. We said, let's find a, a little restaurant, a little bistro. So we found a place, and we walked in, and we sat down uh, at a table. And we sat, and we sat. And we said, it wasn't like there was a lot of business. We were the only ones in there other than about four wait staff, a, a waiter, a cook, a, you know, kind of person that greeted you. They were all at another table over in the corner playing cards and smoking cigarettes. But we were sitting here waiting. And finally, you know, I did the American thing, you know, drop your keys, whatever, whatever you got to do. And so the guy came over and he said, what? We say, well, we'd like to eat. Would you like to start with a drink? Yes, we're very thirsty. And so he brought a drink. And then he went over and sat down. And we waited and waited. What? We'd like to eat. What do you want to eat? Well, I said, I'd like this. You know, I had two options in my mind. I said, I, I think I'd like this. He said, you want that? I said, no, apparently not. I want this. And he looked at me and he said, you want that? I said, let's try it this way. What do you think I should eat? Okay. I'm, I'm about up to here with it, you know. So well, what, you want meat? And I said, yeah, I want meat. Well, you want this right here. I said, okay, let's have this right here. <laughs> and so he promptly goes, he takes my friend's order. He promptly goes over and sits down and starts playing cards and smoking cigarettes. Didn't tell anybody a thing. Well, what's up with this? After they got done with their game, then the cook gets up, goes into the back, cooks. About 20 minutes later, he comes out with the first part of this meal. And then with another part of the meal. And then with another part of the meal. And about two hours into what we thought would be about a 30-minute dinner, I'm, I'm having to ask for my check, you know, check, check, check. And so finally he came and, and, and I thought, you know, we don't do this in America. We're a country on the go. We don't have time to linger over food. Dallying is for laggards like the French. Okay, that's not for, that's not for Americans. And so a French guy wrote a book called The Culture Code. And in The Culture Code, it's, it's a book, interesting book about kind of figuring out what the culture is for every, every different culture, what the code is for every culture, and then how you can make money or uh, you know, do well in that particular culture. And he says, the average American spends six minutes eating dinner. Six. Eating is on the run, or eating on the run is a national pastime. I mean, even if you go to a restaurant, if you go to a restaurant today, probably, 
Um, most, most, many of us will. Our city is full. Charleston is full this weekend. Have you noticed that? There's more people in Charleston this week because it's a, I think a, a you know, a southeastern duck thing or something. I don't know, whatever it is. There's just a lot of people here, you know, and and uh, so and so and so the restaurants will be full, and, and you'll probably notice something. I'm gonna give away a secret here. It's gonna be it's cold outside. It's gonna be cold inside the restaurant. And that's not because the heater doesn't work. It's because they want to turn the tables. That's how you, you know, make a, make a living doing that particular thing. It's just the way it, way it goes. Uh, but many of us, we, we love fast food restaurants. That's, that's where we go. we go. We go to a drive-thru. We eat in the car. We put our drinks in the cup holder, and, on our, and we're on our way to the next appointment. Is there any testimony to this lifestyle? Anybody here that that's kind of what you do? Yeah. Um, we see food differently than a lot of the world. A lot of the world sees food, especially in France, as, um, as pleasure. It's just a pleasurable experience. We eat, it's a pleasurable experience. As Americans, we see it as fuel. Our bodies are a machine. Uh, some of you take this to the nth degree. You hook your, your machine up to an exercise machine, you know, every day or whatever. And food is seen as fuel. And so when an American is done with a meal, what do they say? I'm full. Uh, if a Frenchman is done with a meal, what does he say? That, that was wonderful. It's just a difference in how we see things. Um, Pop-Tarts. Uh, how many of you, it's the breakfast of champion. I've, I've eaten these for years. They actually have instructions on the back on how you cook these. It's, you know, not rocket science, but you can put them in a toaster. But here's the instructions for microwaving it. Listen to this. Remove pastry from the pouch. Place pastry on a microwave-safe place. Microwave on high setting for, how, guess, guess how long? Three seconds. Yeah, uh, uh, Brian Regan, the comedian, says this. He says, uh, he says, uh, if you only have three seconds for breakfast, you're booking too tight. How many of you would agree with that? <laughs> well, what's this have to do with us? It's interesting stuff, Greg. What does it have to do with us? Jesus came doing what? Eating and drinking. That was the how of the why. Why did he come? So he can save the lost. To serve, become a ransom for many. New Testament church carried it through. The New Testament church was all about eating. Churches today, you know, if you came from a good Baptist church or Pentecostal church like I did, a lot of times what they would do is they would have a, uh, they'd have a, a fellowship dinner after church, you know, where everybody kind of brought some fellowship dinner. In the New Testament, the dinner was the deal. The dinner was the church. They would come to eat, and as they ate, some things happened. In fact, um, in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, which was, a recording of the very first church. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the sharing in meals. That was a part of the service, including the Lord's Supper and a prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them, or them all. See, you just don't have time for awe when you're in a hurry. Would you agree with that? Last week we talked about the fact that, um, that if you don't make space, you won't have grace. And you can't have awe if you're constantly in a hurry. The famous Swiss psychologist Carl Jung once said, hurry is, a, is not of the devil, it is the devil. And that's certainly true in relationships. If you're going to develop relationships, you can't be in a hurry. And a meal helps us to slow down. Here's the second thought. A meal connects us. A meal connects us. Think about your dining room table. Maybe it's the one that you grew up or your kitchen table or maybe it's the one that you have in your house right now. Think of all the drama that happened around that table. 
I know growing up for me, this was the source of news. We didn't have, you know, Twitter or whatever. We couldn't turn the television on during, until after dinner. And so if news happened and somebody knew, this is where they relate it. This is where announcements were made. You know, uh, it still is in our, our family. If somebody's going to announce, you know, a new grandbaby or whatever, it's like we, we do it at a meal. They do it creatively at a meal. It's where decisions, it's where values were instilled. This is where my dad taught us. You're Surratt's. Surratt's don't quit. You know, these are values that we have taught here. Uh, it's, it's where decisions were made. Dad would look at me and say, because we, nobody could get up until everybody was done. It wasn't like, you eat yours and run. you got to be there. And since you're there, and some people eat slower than others, Dad would have time to look at me. And he would stare, and he'd look, and he'd go, hey, when's the last time you had your hair cut? Let's get that done tomorrow, okay? And then we'll have accountability on it tomorrow night at, at the dinner table. Uh, it's where my mom put salt in a lemon meringue pie one time. Uh, th that was uh, an experience. Um, we would laugh at each other. It was an important place. It was kind of like Duck Dynasty. You guys ever watched Duck Dynasty? That's a great show. Let me tell you why that's a great show. Because at the end of the show, what do they do? They always have a meal together. It's kind of extended family, and they, and they pray together. Well, uh, I have many memories of extended family. I remember how important the table was because when I was a kid, we had our separate table. Did you have a separate table for your extended family? When you had Christmas and Thanksgiving and all of that. And a great day, a graduation day, was when I was allowed to come to the adult table. Carolyn Steele, an author, says, Few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share a meal is likely to be our friend or well on the way toward becoming one. Someone we share a meal with is likely to be our friend or well on the way to become. There are other ways to develop relationship and friendship, but, but there's very few that are as good as meals. That's, that's why in a dating relationship, the first date is seldom a meal. It's usually coffee because a meal defines the relationship. You know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna spend some time getting to know one another. So the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4 invited Elisha in for a meal. She was offering hospitality. A rapidly fading thing in our culture, in her culture, it was imperative. It wasn't just good manners. It was a moral imperative. It was commanded in the law. God said, when you've got strangers among you, invite them in. Don't treat them poorly. Remember that you were a stranger in the land. Hospitality was huge. In fact, one rabbi said that hospitality was even more important than uh, prayer. Because eating together connects us. Eating together often reconnects, helps reconnect those who have a problem with us. See, unresolved conflict cannot be ignored when you gather around a table. If this person is not talking to this person, have you know this person and this person are going to notice and it's going to be uncomfortable to everybody. Or if it's just this person and this person, and they're not talking to one another, that's miserable. So here's what happens. This person gets their plate and says, I'm going to go eat somewhere else. You can't do that. Not if you're a believer. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if, uh, if you're offering a sacrifice, we think of offering as the offering boxes, but this context was a little bit different. Sacrifices is what they did. They would take, you know, a, a goat or um, a, a, sh a sheep or, you know, a, 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 a cow, 
and they would go, and, and as an act of worship, they would bring it to the temple area, and they would sacrifice it or kill it, and, and then they would cook it. And part of the meat would go to uh, those who served in the temple, and part of it they ate. Most generally, there were some that weren't that way, but most of them that were that way. So it was a meal. It was a meal. And Jesus said, when you go to offer your sacrifice as an act of worship and to eat together, if you remember that one of you has something against you, and it, actually there's two versions of this, and one he says, if you remember somebody has something against you or you have something against somebody else, don't go eat by yourself. Don't even eat with the group if somebody's eating by themselves over there. He says, you go first and you be reconciled. You be reconciled. And so in that sense, the table becomes a sacrament of forgiveness because you eat together. You don't take your plate somewhere else. You eat together, and the discomfort of the silence is to bring you together. You're to ask for forgiveness. The table becomes the place of forgiveness. Ephesians chapter Four and verse 32 says, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Jesus has forgiven you. Is there someone in your home or in your circle of acquaintances who either you or they are eating alone? What is God calling you to do about it? First thing he probably wants you to do is have a meal. And in that meal, Let's see if God doesn't fill the spaces. We make room for him. See if he doesn't fill the space with a spirit of reconciliation. Eating together connects us. It connects us to those who are different from us. Now, we love this idea of church as community. Oh, we love it. We, it you know, the church is the place where people of different backgrounds and races and, and uh, d- different ways of looking at life, they can come together and they have community together and they love one another, they care for one another. In fact, that's why we love this picture of a small church, okay? It's a small church uh, because in a small church, those things happen. The problem is I've been in a small church and that doesn't happen any more regularly than it does in a big church. Because it doesn't happen in settings like this, okay? Um, how much hospitality was offered today? Maybe during the forced fellowship time, right after the second song. We say, turn to one another and greet one another with, uh, you know, maybe a fist bump. Today it was like a, a fat hug here in this campus. I, I felt offended by that. It was, it, was a, it was a fat hug. It was a fat hug. Is that really fellowship? Well, it's good, but it's not fellowship. Where does fellowship happen? Where does community happen? Around a table. That's where it happens. When you sit for a while and you eat together. And if you do that, and many of you are doing that as groups now, if you do that, uh, you know, it's, it's easy in an abstract kind of a way to preach the virtues of love from a distance. But when we eat together, we encourage real people, people who are different from us. Have you noticed that? Some of them are pretty weird. Have you noticed that? If you eat together with very many people, some of them are going to be weird. And if you don't know which ones they are, it's you. (laughs) And here's what else I know. The people you think are weird probably think you're pretty weird too. And yet God's done that on purpose because he wants us to be a community that's not just naturally drawn together. It's easy to be naturally drawn together to people that are just like you for a little while until you find out that they're weird just like you are and then... And then what we do in our world is it's disposable relationships. We just cut them off and we go somewhere else. 
Jesus said no. He said to his disciples, he said, you know, you know how the world is going to know that you're the real deal? By your love for one another. When you sit down at a meal together and you find out that she's just a little bit different than you and she votes for a different person in the ballot box and, and she raises her kids a little bit differently than you do and rather than creating distance, you come close and you listen and you hear and, and you come together over Jesus. You become friends. That's community. That's the church. And uh, in Romans 15 and verse 7, it says, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in, so that God will be given glory. We're, we're called to love real individuals sitting around a table. Now, if you practice hospitality, it's going to be messy. There is collateral damage anytime you open your home to a meal. There are going to be people that spill their coffee on your nice floor. If your floor is so nice that you can't spill coffee on it, you should get a new floor. Because here's where the, life's up here, life's not down there, okay? You're going to have people that take advantage of you. There are going to be people that eat too much, and sometimes people won't help clean up. But here's what you need to do. You need to remember that you're to accept one another, how? Just as God accepted you through Jesus Christ. God invited you to his table, even though you weren't perfect. He said, well, because of Jesus, I'm going to accept you, and we need to accept one another. We're to imitate his generosity. Let me, let me give you a third thing. A meal forces us to slow down. A meal connects us. And here's the third thing a meal do. It, re, it reminds us of God's grace. A meal reminds us of God's grace. How many of you say grace over your meal? How many of you say grace? Most of us. Okay, we say grace over, over the meal. Now, um, the prayer at the beginning of a meal isn't to change the molecular or caloric value of what you're about to partake in. It's like here, I've got a nice, this is from Sonic, and it's a, uh, here we go, here we go, I'm going to pray. Lord, please bless this foot-long coney dog and the chili cheese fries that we are about to partake. May you bless it to our body and our body for your service. That's not a prayer, that's asking for a miracle, that's what that is. <laughs> yeah. I had, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny too. I'm glad you guys got it. <laughs> I had a Shabbat dinner. I told you about it uh, with some Jewish friends a little over a year ago. And uh, they, they, told, they, they explained the meal to me. It was on a Friday night. And they explained the meal to me. And they said, now, one thing that's going to be different than how you do it is, is we, we don't say grace over the meal before the meal. We say it after the meal. We do a small blessing before, but we say grace over the meal after the meal. And the reason is Deuteronomy 8 and verse 12. 10, where it says, when you have eaten your fill, when you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Some verses say, bless the Lord your God. The point is, they bless after the meal when you've had your fill. And the blessings aren't for the stuff in here. The blessing is to say, bless this to the nourishment of our body and our bodies for his service. It doesn't say that. It says, bless God for his graciousness in giving you what you have. Now, Marvin Wilson, an author, says ancient Hebrews would have never thought of blessing what they ate. If everything that God created was very good, according to Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, why should you imply that it was unholy and profane and needed God to bless it again? 
They said, it is blessed. It's all good. And so what they did is blessed God. Now, our practice of blessing food probably comes from the Greeks and from the Gnostics who believe that uh, material things are inherently evil. And what the Jews would say, no, no, they're not. God, God said it's good when he created things. So they're not inherently evil. So we bless God for giving us his good things. God is being blessed. Uh, Jesus did that. Jesus blessed the bread. Do you remember when Jesus blessed the bread? At least twice. Uh, first, it was a, when there were uh, 5,000 people, and he asked his disciples to feed them. Remember that? Two fishes and five loaves. And he took one of the loaves, and he blessed it and then broke it. And, uh, and then also he did the same thing at the Lord's table, which is a, conclu- a very long dinner, a hugely long dinner. He taught all of John 14 through about 17 during the dinner. And he blessed it. He took the bread, and he said, bless this. And here, here's, here's what he Here's what he said. He said, while they were eating, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. What was he praying and what was he doing? He was most likely saying the baracha. I wish I could say it. I've heard it sung on two or three occasions and I can't. But here's, here's, here's what he was saying in English. He was saying, praise be to you, Adonai, our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So he was blessing. God was being blessed. He was saying, God, you're so awesome. God, you give us all good things. You've given me my friends. You've given me my food. I bless you and thank you for it. Now, I'm not trying to challenge the way that you pray necessarily. I'm just calling you back to the original purpose of, of grace at the table. It's taking time to remember God's grace. Thanking him for what he's given you and the relationships you have and for giving you Jesus. Understand, the food is already blessed. Even the Sonic foot-long chili cheese dog. It's okay. Now, there are consequences to how you mix and match and consume God's blessed provision, and all the praising in the world won't change the outcome of that at all. But don't skip the blessing. The blessing reminds us of what? It reminds us of God's grace. So, I'm going to challenge you today. Make room for relationships. Use meals to slow down. Slow down. I don't think we'll ever change our culture, but we can periodically ask God to come into our culture. Make room. Make room. See if God doesn't fill it. Slow down. Connect with each other and remind you of the grace of God. Now, here's your assignment. I'm going to, uh, we're going to do a response time as we always do. Most of the response this week will be done outside of this room. Some will be done in here, but let me give you your assignment, responding to God. Number one, I'm going to ask you to do this, to eat a slow, can you say slow together? Leisurely, say leisurely together. Meal with your family. No iPods, no television, no phones. Turn them all off. It's going to be a slow meal. If you have your family here, this is for those that have your family, I want you to eat with your family. Now, this is going to be difficult for some of you. What are you going to do with all that silence? God will fill it. We're making space for a relationship. God will fill it. Second assignment is this. I want you to eat a slow, leisurely meal with your group, with two or three friends, with your small group. Now, some of your small groups are not eating together every week. It's okay. It would be better if they did. But if you're not, what I want you to do is I want you to go to your group this week 
and I want you to talk about it. Say, okay, we need to make a plan. We're going to eat together, and it's not going to be like an eat and run. We're going to have a slow meal. We'll either at somebody's house or we'll go to a restaurant, but we're going to eat it slow. Now, let me just say this. If you eat slowly at a restaurant, tip more. Okay, don't be campers who, who uh, you know, camp and they can't make any money on the table. You, you need to tip double if you, if you do that. But decide what you're going to do. And here's the third thing. I'd like you to eat a, an intentional meal with someone who's outside of the faith. Somebody outside of the faith. And it's not like a complete radical stranger. I mean, some of you could do that. You know, hey, let's have a meal together. No, it's usually somebody you already work with or you're school with or whatever, you've got a relationship with. And you're just going to eat. And it's not going to be a high evangelism meal. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that this sinner would come to Jesus right now. Okay. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Let me give you the goal. Let me give you the goal. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, but he did it with meals. He uses multiple meals. Okay. Here's the goal. The goal from your meal, if it's your first meal, somebody outside of faith, it'd be good to bring somebody with you from your group probably. Maybe together you do it together. And the goal of the meal is not to convert them. The goal of the meal is that they come away and th not think you're weird. Okay, that's just it. Just come away and you guys just, do you think they thought I was weird? I don't think so. Okay, good. Bingo. You got it. All right. Those three things. Here's what I'd like you to do with your group. I'd like you to go to your group this week, and have you found a spiritual accountability partner in your group? I think it's best if you have two, uh, three people, triads, again, that kind of help, help you, hold you accountable, and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to eat with my family. I'm going to eat with the group, and I'm also going to eat with somebody outside of the faith. Would you help me with that? Would you hold me accountable how I get it in my schedule and so I can talk to you about it when I do it. Now, some of you who are overachievers, you'll do all three of those every week for the next five weeks. That's great. That's awesome. Some of you will do it one time in the next five weeks, and that's okay. But what we're going to do is we're going to say, God, we're going to make space. We're going to make room for a relationship, and then we're going to invite you to move in the middle of it. Make sense? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for just how you are so, so practical in your word. And God, today, I, I, I pray that you would help us to see the value of the meal, of eating and drinking together. And Father, I pray that you would take this next few minutes and apply it to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.